It's been 171 years since 1844 and 100 years since Ellen White's death. Is it safe to talk about why Jesus hasn't come yet? Of course it's not safe, but it is time, or so it seems to me. How to go about it, however, is problematic. From my perspective, the solution to the problem of the delay is simple and straightforward. There is no problem because there is no delay. We simply must be ready at any moment. That's the point of Matthew 24:25, a passage to which we will return. But first, an Uncle Arthur story to put an exclamation mark to Matthew 24:25. Farmer looking for a hired hand was drawn to an honest-looking young man, but to the question, what do you know about farming, all the lad could say was, I can sleep on windy nights. Puzzled, the farmer hired him anyway and was pleased with his work until one night when the farmer woke up with a start. Strong winds were lashing the house with visions of animals, hay, and barns all at risk. He bounded out of bed and went to rouse his hired hand, sound asleep. The farmer couldn't rouse him at all. Angrily, he stomped out to repair the damage, but to his amazement, he found everything buttoned down tight. Animals, hay, barns were all safe. Finally, the truth struck home. I can sleep on windy nights. Both within Adventism and the larger human family, however, that attitude of constant preparedness, the message of Matthew 24, 25, does not come naturally. And the seemingly long delay has pushed us into widely divergent conclusions. In fact, in my view, nothing divides the church and world so thoroughly as eschatology, the study of last-day events. Since the issue here is eschatology, I'll list four basic options with brief explanatory comments. The underlying mindset for each is relevant to our concerns here since each of them strikes a responsive chord in Adventist souls. And I'm convinced that even with reference to eschatology, a proper understanding of scripture and our Adventist heritage offers a wonderful opportunity for us to come into common ground, preserving the best of all four perspectives. In his 1978 commentary on Daniel, Desmond Ford declared that each of the perspectives is right in what it affirms and wrong in what it denies. That's worth remembering as we consider the various impulses at work when Adventists ask about the delay. Here now is a brief summary and comment on each. Historicism is the traditional Reformation in Adventist position. Suggested by the visions of the image of Daniel 2 and the four kingdoms of Daniel 7, historicism marks key events on a single historical line, culminating in the establishment of God's kingdom. In Daniel 2, for example, the climax is represented by the stone that fills the whole earth. In Daniel 7, the saints receive the kingdom. The date for the great disappointment, October 22, 1844, was derived from from Daniel 8.14 on the basis of historicist principles. But with the passage of time, the issues surrounding that date have become increasingly troublesome, especially for strict historicists. Preterism is the dominant view of secular scholars and many on the liberal side of Christianity. It portrays all events as happening in the past, in and around the author's own day. Preterism typically does not project a real second coming since it usually involves a rejection of God's active involvement in human history. Thus, the desecration restoration of the sanctuary is seen as happening during the Maccabean era, the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Sophisticated Adventists, especially those educated in a secular setting, often find themselves drifting toward this position, even when they wish it were otherwise though family and cultural connections can preserve at least a flicker of the Advent hope. (coughs) Futurism is is now the dominant view among conservative Protestants. 
In North America, some 30 million evangelicals, the left-behind people, project all unfulfilled Old Testament prophecies into the future. Thus, the sanctuary of Daniel 8 will be rebuilt in Jerusalem on the side of the Muslim mosque. And in the light of Zechariah 14, they see childbirth, death, and animal sacrifice continuing during an earthly millennium. The projected continuation of animal sacrifices is especially remarkable since these futurists are all devout evangelicals who firmly believe in the completed atonement on the cross. A surprising Adventist form of futurism involves the reapplication of the time periods in Daniel Revelation, 1260, 1290, 1335 days, as literal days, not as years, as in traditional historicism. That means date setting again. The Great Disappointment didn't cure us of date setting after all. But for all our uneasiness with extreme forms of futurism, we must remind ourselves that those who believe Jesus is coming are indeed futurists. We just don't know when. In the meantime, we have to learn to sleep on windy nights. Applied historicism is my label for the idea of multiple applications of biblical prophecies through history. Desmond Ford uses the term idealism to refer to this fourth perspective on eschatology, but he treats it only briefly, noting that its supporters think in terms of symbols, not actual future events. In Ford's view, most idealists are preterists. Ford himself develops an analogous approach based on what he calls the apotelismatic principle, a system of multiple fulfillments. I much prefer the term applications, which allows greater flexibility in our study of the reuse of scripture. But whichever label one prefers, one thing is clear within scripture itself, namely that the same prophecy may be applied to several different events. A good series of biblical examples starts with the celestial signs heralding the day of the Lord in the book of Joel. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. These same signs mark the day of the Lord in several other prophetic books, including Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos. Consistently, the signs point to an imminent local day, which then easily points forward to a final day of judgment and restoration. In Joel, the day is clearly a grasshopper plague in the prophet's own day. That would be a preterist interpretation. In Acts 2, Peter makes the first reapplication of Joel's dark day, namely to events connected with the crucifixion and Pentecost. Then in the 19th century, Adventist historicists linked Joel with the dark day of May 19, 1780. Note the capitalization. For historicists, May 19, 1780 was the dark day to end all dark days. But Revelation 6, 12 to 16 clearly refers to another dark day, the ultimate dark day when Jesus comes. Clearly that is, unless one is too closely wedded to traditional historicism. Uriah Smith, for example, expounds at some length on the signs of verses 12 and 13. He gives dates. Lisbon earthquake, November 1, 1755. The darkening of the sun, May 18, 1780. And the falling of the stars, November 13, 1833. Verse 14 immediately falls, follows with a description of Jesus' return. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Smith clearly sees the change in application, stating, We stand between 13th and 14th verses of this chapter, and he waxes eloquent on the Advent home. From a more neutral perspective, the obvious reading of the text is to see all the signs applying to the time of the second coming. But Uriah Smith lived too close to the traditional historicist events, to see them as signs actually accompanying the second coming. Now note the timing of all this. Smith was born on May 3, 1832. He was barely 18 months old when the stars fell. 
unless he was a remarkable baby, he would not have remembered the event. Yet the movement to which he belonged imprinted him with the event. Indeed, all three of the traditional signs were very much part of our pioneer's thinking. William Miller had begun preaching his second coming message in 1831. The stars fell just as he was beginning to build up a good head of steam. And the timing of his birth is also remarkable. If Uriah Smith was a tiny baby when the stars fell in 1833, Miller, born on February 15, 1782, was a mere toddler when the dark day of May 19, 1780 made such a huge impact on New England. Yet Miller, like all those in the movement, was deeply imprinted by the event. The timing of the third event, the Lisbon earthquake, is just as intriguing. In the early 1990s, in an upper division Daniel class, I asked this question. How many of you have been seriously shaped by the Lisbon earthquake? Not a hand. Then I asked which earthquake did make a difference. San Francisco earthquake, came a chorus of voices. And where were you living, I asked. San Francisco, they said. The date for that, shocking, for that shaking of the earth was October 17, 1989, with 67 deaths and $5 billion in damages. It has been described as one of the most powerful and domestic quakes, domestic quakes, destructive quakes ever to hit a populated area in the United States. The next year, also in the Daniel class, I mentioned what the students had said the year before. Remarkably, one of the students in that class had been at the famous Multnomah Falls in Oregon on Labor Day 1995 when a 400-ton boulder the size of a small school bus loosened by erosion fell 225 feet from the face of the waterfall into the upper cascade pool above Benson Bridge. It caused a 70-foot splash of water and gravel to wash over the footbridge, causing minor injuries to 20 members of a wedding party that happened to be on the bridge posing for photos at the same time. The young woman in my class had been close enough to see it all happen no doubt she will remember it for life. Anyone who lives through even a small earthquake never forgets. And even for those not there in person, the story can be told in ways that others will remember, too. And so to the Lisbon earthquake, one that is well worth remembering, for it was a world-changing event. Almost totally destroying Lisbon, Portugal's capital. Seismologists estimate a magnitude of 8.5 to 9 on the moment magnitude scale. Fissures 15 feet wide opened in the city center. Fires raged for five days. Three giant tsunamis swept over the city. From the earthquake, fires, and tsunamis together, estimates of the number who died in the city of Lisbon alone ranged between 10,000 and 100,000 people, making it one of the most deadly earthquakes in history. The ripple effects were significant and lasting. According to the Wikipedia entry, the earthquake accentuated political tensions in the Kingdom of Portugal and profoundly disrupted the country's colonial ambitions. It was widely discussed and dwelt upon by Enlightenment philosophers and inspired major developments in theodicy. As the first earthquake studied scientifically for its effects over a large area, it led to the birth of modern seismology and earthquake engineering. Before we leave the celestial signs, we should note the relationship between the natural and the supernatural in the discussion of the signs, an issue likely to affect the thinking of at least some Adventists. On the one hand are the skeptics who see the world only in terms of the natural, not the supernatural. A 1982 article by Donald Casebolt raises the skeptical question in his title, Is Ellen White's Interpretation of Biblical Prophecy Final? In some ways, the article is a puzzling blend of the skeptical and the orthodox. 
Casebolt bluntly denies the supernatural, stating that both the 1833 meteor shower and the 1780 dark day have natural, not as commonly believed, supernatural causes. But then, as his subtitle implies, he wants to affirm the authority of Scripture, rather orthodox concern. And, on, and in that connection, he asks about the authority of Ellen White as final interpreter of Scripture. I agree with him that Ellen White should not be seen as the final interpreter of inter- interpretation of Scripture, but my concerns are broader, namely how we understand the New Testament writer's use of the Old Testament. The first chapter in my Who's Afraid of the Old Testament God addresses the point. Though the book includes no Adventist jargon and no mention of Ellen White, the title, Don't Let Your New Testament Get in the Way of Your Old Testament, seeks to encourage the devout, whether Adventists in their use of Ellen White or Evangelicals in their use of the New Testament, to lay inspired passages side by side so that one can hear all the voices rather than stacking them on top of each other, so to speak, so that the one on top has the last word. Basing his conclusions on science rather than on scripture, Casebold affirms the idea of the multiple occurrences of the heavenly signs, a conclusion just as easily confirmed from, um, from the study of the Old Testament prophetic passages themselves. And believers can also use science for the same purpose. In 1997, for example, Mickey Kutzner, now a professor of physics at Andrews University, published an article in the Adventist Review with a subtitle that is as interesting as the title itself. Will the stars fall again? Why an 1833-like shower might occur this November, or the next, or the next? Without hesitation, Kutzner affirms the idea of multiple appearances of the heavenly signs. Though his primary focus is on science and history that are in the Bible, his purpose is still to affirm the community's faith. To summarize the four perspectives, let's observe one more sequence of a multiple application, this time applications involving the sanctuary. First, Daniel's vision pointed him only to the sanctuary destroyed by Babylon in 587-86. Second, when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple in 168-67, the Jewish people applied the language of Daniel to this new enemy. Third, in Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of yet another abomination that would haunt the temple, a a reference interpreters have unanimously applied to the Roman destruction in 70 CE. It also shows that preterism, with its exclusive focus on Antiochus, cannot be fair with all the biblical evidence. Antiochus was indeed a desecrating force, but not the only one. So Babylon destroyed the sanctuary. Antiochus polluted it. Rome destroyed it again. Then what? Twice in Daniel 8, the angelic messenger told Daniel that the vision concerned the time of the end. But after 70 CE, the sanctuary is gone. In terms of today's interpreters, that leaves two choices. One, rebuild the temple on the side of the Muslim mosque with our futurist friends. Or two, turn our attention to the heavenly sanctuary and explore all that it means to us in terms of Christ's ministry on our behalf. I'll take the heavenly sanctuary any day. Furthermore, the sanctuary is now truly universal because it is no longer bound to one location on earth. So now let's return to the main focus of this article and the question, why hasn't Jesus come? Our goal is still to be able to work nights, work days, sleep nights, and be ready for the Lord at any moment. But to arrive at that goal, we must address some complex issues. First, however, we need permission from the Bible to ask our questions. After all, the scoffers of the New Testament got no sympathy from heaven with their question, where is the promise of his coming? 
Fortunately, Scripture validates our concerns with a small but solid list of God-fearing skeptics, saints who had serious questions. Let's check them off. Abraham worried out loud that God might destroy the wicked and the innocent together at Sodom. Shuddering at his own boldness, he confronted God. You can't do that. You're the judge of all the earth. Moses was stunned when God told him to step aside so that he could wipe out the Sinai rebels. You'll ruin your reputation, Moses exclaimed. What will the Egyptians say? Moses' reward? God repented and didn't do it. Job was beside himself with questions. What difference does it make, he muttered. God destroys the innocent along with the guilty. In the end, a score of 0 out of 84 on God's final exam miraculously tamed Job's soul. But also in the end, God was angry with Job's friends for not telling the truth as Job had done. Eliphaz, for example, had comforted Job with these frequently quoted words, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. The answer didn't help Job, and it triggered God's wrath, for he was speaking directly to Eliphaz when he told the friends, Job's miserable comforters, that Job, not they, had spoken the truth. Job prayed for his friends, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Daniel, famous as one of God's heroes for whom Scripture records no known sin, still was troubled and exhausted by his visions, and he told God so. Habakkuk pointedly asked God why he didn't do something about all the injustices in the world, even allowing the wicked to swallow up those more righteous than themselves. From the disciples, we can add to our list the names of Nathaniel and Thomas. Can any good come out of Nazareth, asked Nathaniel. Philip gave him a good Adventist response right from the heart of the great controversy. Come and see for yourself. Doubting Thomas got the same gracious treatment from the Lord. Touch me. Put your hand here and see for yourself. Finally, both David and Jesus belong on our list. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, cried our Lord from the cross, quoting a flesh and blood psalmist who had asked the very same question centuries before. And God has published that prayer for us in both Testaments. In short, when we join our voices with the Adventist martyrs under the altar with the cry, How long, O Lord? We stand in solidarity with a distinguished list of God-fearing skeptics. And the list isn't so short after all. When we add the voices from under the altar, it's in the millions. So now let's turn more directly to a larger context from Scripture and focus on the question, Why hasn't Jesus come? The first cluster of texts deal with the principle of constant preparedness. Matthew 24, 25, bring us face to face with our last day questions. In Matthew 24, after Jesus referred to the destruction of the temple, the disciples eagerly asked, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the world? Jesus gave them a long list of signs declaring, so when you see all these things happening, you will know that the time has almost come. But he immediately moved from signs to surprises. No one knows the day or the hour. The angels in heaven don't know. And the Son himself doesn't know. Only the Father knows. In the days of Noah, the flood caught everyone by surprise, and a thief always comes when you don't expect it. So be on your guard, declared Jesus. You don't know when your Lord will come. <coughs> Three illustrations follow, all with the same moral. Do you know that the thief is coming? Do you know when the thief is coming? No. So be ready. A man leaving on a trip puts his servants in charge. Do they know when he is returning? No. So be ready. The wedding party waits for the bridegroom who is delayed, but finally arrives. The moral? Always be ready. You don't know the day or the time when all this will happen. Two more stories follow, this time describing what God's people should be doing while they wait. A master put his servants in charge of his business, then left for a trip. After a long time, he returned and settled accounts, richly rewarding two servants who kept on working, but firmly judging a third who had done nothing. The moral? Work while you wait. 
Finally, in the judgment story of the sheep and the goats, Jesus taught that those who serve the needy serve their master. Judgment fell on those who did nothing. Jesus' point in Matthew 24, 25, that his coming will be a surprise is reinforced in two additional New Testament passages. Just before Jesus' ascension, the disciples asked of him if the time had come. You don't need to know, said Jesus. And Paul is equally blunt with the Thessalonians. I don't need to write you about the time or date when all this will happen. You surely know that the Lord's return will be as a thief coming at night. Both in the Gospels and the Epistles, the message is clear. Everyone will be surprised. The only question is whether it will be a happy surprise or a painful one. C.S. Lewis was to the point when he summarized the New Testament teaching. We must never speak to simple, excitable people about the day without emphasizing again and again the utter impossibility of prediction. We must try to show them that the impossibility is an essential part of the doctrine. If you do not believe our Lord's words, why do you believe in his return at all? And if you do believe them, must you not put away from you utterly and forever any hope of dating that return? His teaching on the subject quite clearly consisted of three propositions. One, that he will certainly return. Two, that we cannot possibly find out when. Three, that therefore we must always be ready for him. In addition to the principle of constant preparedness, conditionality is central to any explanation of the so-called delay. And here the voices of scripture and of early Adventists point the way. Jonah. Like the prophet Jonah, many Adventists are reluctant to accept what is perfectly clear in Scripture, namely that the prophecy was wonderfully successful precisely because prediction had failed. Remarkably, Jonah made it happen by preaching an absolute message that turned out to be conditional. I'll quote here from the CEV, but every English translation gets it right. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. We'll never know until the kingdom whether Jonah preached that absolute message on his own nickel or as the result of a direct revelation from God. Either way, it's thoroughly biblical. But however that decision was made, the result was brilliant. Failed prediction led to a successful prophecy. The king and his pagan subjects actually turned away from their evil ways. Instead of rejoicing, however, Jonah sulked. Even though in his heart he knew what the king of Nineveh knew, that if evil people repent, God repents, to use the King James Version language, I should note that here, here that Calvinists are so troubled by the idea of God's repentance that they frequently tinker with the translation when God is the subject. The NIV, for example, often says that God relents rather than repents. The NRSV is quite correct with its upfront, with its upfront rendition. God changes his mind. But in the Old Testament, if one does a study of the English word repent in the KJV, God repents more often than anyone else. And the clue to its meaning is suggested in the apparent contradiction in the narrative of God's rejection of King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. The KJV translators were bold and did not back away from the strong contrast. Here's their rendition in the key verse in 1 Samuel 15. Speaking to King Saul, Samuel says, The strength of Israel will not lie <coughs> nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then just six verses later, the narrator declares that the Lord repented that he had made King Saul over Israel. The clue, God does not repent as a man repents because the Lord never does anything wrong. But scripture is everywhere clear that when humans sincerely repent, it is the right thing for a just and holy God to repent and accept the sinner. In the book of Jonah, the king of Nineveh uses the word repent once with God as a subject where he uses it hopefully the prophet uses it once, angrily, and the narrator uses it once, simply, descriptively. The king was indeed hopeful in spite of the prophet's stark message. 
Maybe God will change his mind and have mercy on us so we won't be destroyed. Sometimes scripture does seem to declare a point of no return. But when the king of Nineveh said, who knows, or maybe, he's sharing a conviction, his hope that even the most impossible situation is not really hopeless in the eyes of a merciful God. Jonah knew that too, but didn't want to admit it. From this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? And that is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Isaiah. Another example of hopeful hopelessness is found in Isaiah 1. No matter how much you pray, God declared to the prophet, I won't listen. You are too violent. Here, too, Scripture makes it clear that God has no interest in proving that he is right. He simply wants the people to turn from their violence. Some of the most encouraging words in Scripture follow that apparently absolute prophecy. I, the Lord, invite you to come and talk it over. Your sins are scarlet red, but they will be whiter than snow or wool. If you willingly obey me, the best crops in the land will be yours. But if you turn against me, your enemies will kill you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jeremiah and Micah. Jeremiah 26 provides us with what may be the most revealing illustration of the divine method. What is so astonishing about this passage is the way that people responded to Jeremiah's pleading. Initially, his was a conditional message. But in contrast with Jonah, Jeremiah stated his conditional if right up front. Repent, and the Lord will repent. Twice Jeremiah gave that conditional prophecy. But the people were thoroughly human, reacting to Jeremiah's conditional message as if it were absolute. They were ready to lynch the prophet. Only when some of the elders pointed to an absolute prophecy that turned out to be conditional did the people back off. Then some of the leaders from other towns stepped forward. They told the crowd that years ago when Hezekiah was king of Judah... A prophet named Micah from the town of Moresheth had said, I, the Lord All-Powerful, say Jerusalem will be plowed under and left in ruins. Thorns will cover the mountain where the temple now stands. Then the leaders continued, No one put Micah to death for saying that. Instead, King Hezekiah prayed to the Lord with fear and trembling and asked him to have mercy. Then the Lord decided not to destroy Jerusalem, even though he had already said he would. People of Judah, if Jeremiah is killed, we will bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. The elders were simply quoting words found in Micah 3.12 in our Bibles. Micah's prophecy is absolute, no ifs, ands, or buts, but it turned out to be conditional. Like Paul, God will be all things to all people, that he might be all means, by all means might save some. Or we could say, like God, Paul became all things to all people for the purpose of saving some. God and his messengers will stand on their heads in order to reach people. The last verse of 1 Corinthians 4 identifies God's method, whether prophetic or apostolic. What would you prefer? Am I to come to you with a stick or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And now as we seek to illumine the idea of conditionalism further, we turn more specifically to Adventism and draw on some surprising features from our own heritage and from the writings of Ellen White. The Disappointment and Ellen White. Obviously, our Adventist forebears did not believe in conditional prophecy. If they had, there would have been no disappointment. Having inherited a strict historicist framework from the Reformers, they expected events to happen as predicted. But after the disappointment, tensions gradually increased, for they still expected Jesus to come soon. Thus, they began to take small steps towards what Adventists now call 
conditional prophecy. The true inheritors of the early Adventist mindset are now the evangelical dispensationalists, who are so deeply imprinted with Calvinist thinking that they could never speak of an unfulfilled prophecy. Since they believe that all God's predictions must take place, all unfulfilled Old Testament prophecies are projected into the future. Hence their convictions about a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, along with birth, death, and animal sacrifice during the thousand years on earth. And here a fascinating 1883 quotation from Ellen White comes into play. Lyons responding to a critic who threw back at her these words from early writings to prove that she was a false prophet. Quotes, I saw that the time for Jesus to be in the most holy place was nearly finished, and that time can last but a very little longer. Close quotes. In her written response, Ellen White quoted key New Testament passages to show that hope was still alive. Her references are remarkable because they are the same ones used by critics to show that hope had failed. Rudolf Bultmann, New Testament scholar of demythologizing fame, declared that the New Testament eschatology was impossible, quotes, for the simple reason that the parousia of Christ never took place as the New Testament expected. History did not come to an end, and as every schoolboy knows, it will continue to run its course. These are the passages Ellen White cites to show that the hope is alive, because the timing of the advent, not the advent itself, is conditional. The time is short, 1 Corinthians 7. The day is at hand, Romans 13. The time is at hand, Revelation 1. Things which must shortly be done, behold, I come quickly, Revelation 22. As recorded in Selected Messages Book 1, her written response continues with this pivotal statement. The angels of God in their messages to men represent time as very short. Thus it has always been presented to me. It is true that time has continued longer than we expected in the early days of this message. Our Savior did not appear as we had hoped. But has the word of the Lord failed? Never. It should be remembered that the promises and threatenings of God are alike conditional. The idea of conditional prophecy helps explain those Ellen White quotations, which clearly shows that she believed the Lord could come very soon. In 1872, for example, her sense of eminence led her to write, Our children may never enter college. In 1882, all schools among us will soon be closed up. And in 1895, she stated, Our work will soon be closed up. But the idea of conditional prophecy is volatile. With reference to Ellen White's statement about the promises and threatenings of God, one devout retired pastor exclaimed to me in an email, This is scary stuff. The context is the timing of the second advent, but can it be limited to that? It would seem to close the door to any and all prophecy as well as all Bible promises. The fact that she said this only once may be significant. Scripture requires two or three witnesses. The intensity of his uneasiness is revealed by his remarkable suggestion that since Scripture requires two or three witnesses, we might need more than one Ellen White quote before we accept her position. If applied to scripture itself, such an approach would certainly reduce the size of our Bibles. For starters, Daniel 8.14 and the Adventist Sanctuary Doctrine would disappear, a troubling yet fruitful part of our Adventist heritage. After all, it was a vision of the heavenly sanctuary, Revelation 15, with a soft halo of light or a halo of glory encircling the fourth commandment that convinced Ellen White that the Sabbath was important. And from the standpoint of the argument developed here, the great disappointment triggered by Daniel 8.14 is the event that can point us back towards the biblical teaching on conditionalism. Yes, only once did Ellen White say that the promises and threatenings of God are alike conditional. It was an 1883 defense of her ministry. But what is so surprising and intriguing is that she never published her response while she was still alive. 
It was excerpted in Evangelism in 1946, then published with full context in 1958 in Selected Messages, Book 1. Furthermore, after writing this highly unusual self-defense, she apparently decided not to send it to the critic after all. Manuscript 4, 1883, is an orphan in the White Estate Files. We don't know the name of the potential recipient. All we know is that she did not use her written response again while she was still alive, perhaps because the idea was too scary for the church at that time. But now let's deal with three more Adventist fears. First, could the second coming itself be conditional? Never. In both Testaments, the hope of restoration stands clear. In the Old Testament, the people around Israel had no idea of a restoration. Their view of history was cyclical and natural. Fertility rites correctly performed would ensure that the fertility god Baal would die in the spring and come, to life, come back to life in the fall. Every year was the same. By contrast, the religion of Israel was linear and goal-oriented, moving toward restoration. I am particularly fond of Isaiah's vision of the vegetarian kingdom, which nobody, where nobody eats anybody else. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The New Testament takes us a note higher, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. To be sure, even in the New Testament era, mockers sided the delay with scorn. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But their mocking called forth from the apostle the best possible explanation for the delay. The Lord isn't slow about keeping his promises, as some people think he is. In fact, God is patient because he wants everyone to turn from sin and no one to be lost. The second Adventist fear may be more troubling because the answer may need to be muffled. Is it possible that the end-time scenario spelled out in great controversy may not happen as described? I want to say yes, but very cautiously, for a survey of how Scripture deals with change reveals how carefully God and his servants respond to such matters. In retrospect, changes become clear, but almost always in retrospect, not up front. I am the Lord, I change not is deeply rooted in the souls of believers, and although its context clearly indicates that it refers to God's unchanging character, in the minds of the devout, it still very easily broadens to prohibit any change at all in connection with God's ways. Acts 14 to 15 provides us with a clear biblical example of how God leads his people to incorporate change. The issue is whether or not non-Jewish converts needed to be circumcised according to Mosaic teaching. The devout Jews who opposed change were quite right to insist that, according to the scriptures, circumcision had always been required. But a mission-driven change had come about as a result of Paul's preaching to non-Jewish God-fearers in the synagogue. Guided by the Spirit, we presume, Paul was far enough away from church headquarters that he could decide that these Gentiles didn't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. In short, they could accept Christ straight away. For church growth, the results were wildly successful, but the traditional Jewish Christians were troubled because they saw no biblical grounds for the change. All that led up to the Jerusalem conference described in Acts 15, where it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, not to burden you with anything beyond these following requirements. 
and the list of four requirements said not a peep about circumcision. It was quietly dropped. Yet Acts 16, 1-3 clearly shows that Paul circumcised Timothy for mission-driven reasons. Timothy had to work with Jews. Since the old was still a live option for those working with Jews, no one shouted from the housetops the good news of the new position. As far as I know, none of us has a prophetic gift to determine whether or not American society will return to a strong sense of Sunday sacredness. It just might. But from the practical point of view, there is a huge difference between the late 19th century when Sunday legislation shouted from the front page of every major newspaper and today when the only way to preach Sunday legislation is from the book The Great Controversy. Similarly, Jesus never attacked the eschatology of Zechariah 14 with its vision of the gradual elimination of evil. Instead, he simply preached the new eschatology of a sudden end to evil with the coming of the Messiah. We simply don't know how they made the change, but we can see in retrospect that a change had indeed taken place. That's why even the most sincere Adventist conservatives do not go to door, door to door distributing copies of Zechariah. The day may come when we will treat the distribution of great controversy in the same way. We, don't, we won't throw the book away any more than Jesus and the disciples threw away the book of Zechariah. We can still see both Zechariah and the great controversy as being inspired. If and when the time is right, God will find a way to bring the issue to the front. It almost happened in 1993 when Catholic bashing billboards sponsored by devout conservative Adventists began springing up all around the country. Gentle Adventists, those whose lives are more typically guided by the gracious spirit of Desire of Ages, rather than by the more strident lines of the book Great Controversy, were horrified at these beast-bashing billboards. Because of the urgency of the situation, I wrote extensively on the issue. My five-part series on the topic of beast bashing was published in the North Pacific Union Gleaner. The Columbia Union Visitor expanded that to seven parts with two interview articles. Shorter interview-based articles appeared in the Southern Union Tidings and the Canadian Union Messenger. The articles were eagerly received by otherwise very conservative church leaders. Eagerly, yes, but with great ambivalence because, as a church, we had not grappled enough with the underlying issue of conditional prophecy. So the billboards gradually disappeared, the crisis passed, and the church went back to sleep. In that series of articles, I quoted a remarkable statement by General Conference Vice President Charles Bradford that was published in the official reports of the 1990 General Conference. Quotes, Today, there are fewer Sunday laws being enforced than at any time in recent years. I had never before seen anything quite that blunt in an official church publication. A 1993 statement from Roland Hegstad, editor of Liberty Magazine, reinforced the point. Quotes, over the past 30 years, the growing secularization of society has been a greater threat to our church than have Sunday laws. The third Adventist fear is related to our traditional preaching of the three angels' messages. If times have changed, what do we say about the beast? Scripture can help us here. In Isaiah 19, 16-25, for example, the prophet looks forward to a time when Israel and her two greatest historic enemies, Assyria and Egypt, would come together as co-heirs of God's kingdom. The passage concludes, On that day, Israel will be the third, with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my heritage. 
If at one point there was hope for Assyria and Egypt, could we not also see some redemptive possibilities for Rome and the Pope? Indeed. And we wouldn't have to compromise our teachings one iota. Ellen White herself said in 1896, we may have less to say in some lines in regard to the Roman power and the papacy. As for the beast, we should do what the New Testament writers did. They never mentioned Rome at all. For them, the beast was Babylon, long since gone from the face of the earth. But everyone would know what Bab- that Babylon was a code name for the manifestation of the beast. So wherever the shoe fits, wear it. In Revelation, the beast is coercive and deceptive. Wherever those traits appear in our day, we know that we are dealing with something beastly. I've dealt with this concept in Beyond Common Ground under the heading of Applied Historicism. In short, we never baptize the beast. He is always there to inform our thoughts and actions today. It is quite clear from Scripture and the writings of Ellen White that we should never condemn anyone on the basis of biblical prediction. Sprinkled throughout scriptures are failed predictions that have resulted in successful prophecies. Every time that happens, there is joy in heaven. In all this discussion, an article in the fourth volume of the SD Bible Commentary is one that the church urgently needs to rediscover. Entitled, The Role of Israel in Old Testament Prophecy, it it was standard fare for those of us who studied under J. Paul Grove at Walla Walla College in the 1960s. According to R.F. Cottrell, the unnamed author of the article, it affirms that the predictive prophecies of the Old Testament were originally addressed to literal Israel under the covenant and were to have been fulfilled to them had they remained faithful to their covenant obligations and accepted the Messiah when he came. That Cottrell quote was published in his 1985 Spectrum article, The Untold Story of the Bible Commentary appearing some 28 years after the 1957 publication of the seven-volume commentary series. His article is full of fascinating insights, including some that are directly relevant to his commentary piece on the role of Israel. Cottrell was an associate editor of the Adventist Review when the original edition of the SDA Bible Commentary was being produced. That was between, that was between 1953 and 1957. With the blessing of F.D. Nickel, editor of the Adventist Review for 21 years and supervising editor of the Commentary Project, Cottrell wrote the Role of Israel article, outlining principles for interpreting Old Testament predictive prophecy. Cottrell noted that prior to working on the commentary itself, both he and Don Neufeld, associate editor of the Adventist Review, thought of the book of Daniel as an exception to this otherwise universal rule. But as the time, but by the time he and Newfeld had finished editing <coughs> the commentary material on Daniel, they had both changed their minds. Elder Nichols' overriding pastoral concern, however, led him to insert a parenthetical caveat on page 38. In that caveat, he stated that the principle that applied these predictive prophecies to literal Israel did not apply to the book of Daniel that the prophets had been bidden to shut up and seal, or to other passages whose application inspiration may have limited exclusively to our time. To my mind, that exception makes no sense. If the predictive prophecies would have been fulfilled to ancient Israel in Christ's day, the time prophecies are based, based on historicist principles would never have taken place and no one would have been the wiser. Indeed, the history of interpretation of the book of Daniel in the same fourth volume of the SDA Bible Commentary makes it clear that the day-year principle wasn't even applied to the time periods in Daniel Revelation until the 12th century Common Era. We must remember, however, that Ellen White's pivotal statement on the conditional nature of God's promises and threatenings was not published in its entirety until 1958. 
just one year after the commentary was completed. All factors considered, I think Nichols' pastorally motivated insertion was quite appropriate, indeed providential. But turning to our day, I think the article in SBABC would help us to know how to react when the Pope shows that he is following the teachings of Jesus. In short, we should rejoice rather than look for ways to prove that his real intent is to deceive us. Ellen White once wrote, The very last work in the controversy may be the enlightenment of those who have not rejected light and evidence, but who have been in midnight darkness and have in ignorance worked against the truth. Therefore, treat every man as honest. Speak no word, do no deed that will confirm any in unbelief. Ellen White does not make room for exceptions. We must also treat the Pope as honest. That's because she is taking Matthew 7.12 very seriously. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Finally, we should note the varied answers that Adventists have used in attempting to explain why Jesus hasn't come yet. One, signs haven't been fulfilled. Two, the character of Christ hasn't been perfected in a final generation. And three, the gospel hasn't been preached in all the earth. All three explanations can only be partial at best. And as a colleague of mine once said, all explanations of the delay very quickly turn demonic. In fact, they easily move toward the stance of the evil servant who said in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming. Jesus hasn't come yet. It's not our task to assign blame. But I choose to live with the conviction that he could come tonight. In the days of Noah, Jesus said the people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark and knew nothing about what was happening until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And so we wait. But while we wait, there's work to do. We also need to be able to sleep on windy nights. And above all, let's remember the parable of the sheep and the goats. If we want to be in God's kingdom, we will take our stand with the sheep. I didn't think it was possible, Alden, but you did. <laughs> One reason why Alden was anxious to finish a few minutes early, if we could, was to take advantage of your insights. So uh, we don't have a microphone, I don't think, out there, but this building is small enough, hopefully, so that you will be heard. Uh, I'll go out there and I'll attempt to moderate questions, and uh, if you can make comments as as you can, and questions as succinct as you, succinct as you can, that will certainly help. We have uh, about ten minutes, so let's try and use them to the right advantage. You've stumped the ball. Well, this particular piece, as you can tell, is full of landmines. But there are issues that we need to address. Please. Right. Given we have the, the big push at the moment administratively to go very blindly, historicist, how do you relate to that? I pray a lot. <laughs> I, I cannot understand why my brothers are so reluctant um, to look at the evidence in Scripture and in the writings of Ellen White. And the other thing I cannot, cannot understand is why they are so reluctant to talk to me. But of course, once you take the position, and I, hold, I do not hold to inerrancy, but I believe all scripture is inspired by God, 
But if somebody says, but Sister White says, it's very easy for me to say, but she also says, and nobody, and I don't mean to mean to people, but Ellen White does say a great diversity of things applied to specific situations. The same way with scripture. Thank you, I've been greatly blessed. And I might add, our trip last year to Australia, because we came last year to Victoria, and then this year we've been in Western Australia, have been incredible blessings to both my wife and me. You folks are far enough away from Silver Spring. <laughs> Once you can be honest, no big typical Aussies. <laughs> What I was working with with the elders over in Western Australia, and I've done this a number of places, is that you will not give conservatives permission to move unless they can be absolutely sure that there is a firm anchor. And I would love to see us go back to the original covenant that Adventists used in 1861 when we first organized our churches. We, the underside, hereby associate ourselves together as a church taking the name Seventh-day Adventist, covenanting to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, period. I would be more than happy to sign that. And then everything else would be illustrations in time and place. But this business of trying to discuss statements of belief, every general conference has got to stop, quite frankly. We cannot afford another general conference like the last one. Alden, you mentioned that you think that the book of Daniel is probably conditional like the rest of the prophets. Uh, what about Revelation? Interesting thing about the book of Revelation. I mean, what we've done is taken Daniel and set the historicist time period, and then we say all the time periods in Revelation are the same as those in Daniel. If you read the book of Revelation, it's not obviously historicist at all. Only when you assume that the two belong together do you get the historicist pattern. Um, and I could take the seven churches as kind of a partial illustration of the diversity there. Clearly, the seven churches were preterist, seven churches in Asia Minor. Historicists said these are seven eras. And you could take the uh, applied historicists, say, in this whole group here, there are probably the seven different experiences represented. The one position we don't have is I don't think anybody suggests that the seven churches will come back again at the end of time. So, so I think there's a lot to study in the book of Revelation, and we have only begun our work. I might mention also with reference to the Sabbath, Adventists have always had an eye on Sunday keepers to guide us in our Sabbath keeping. Now that there are no Sunday keepers out there anymore we don't have a clue as to how to keep the Sabbath (laughs) and we need to come together focus on scripture study together until it seems clear to the Holy Spirit and to us what we ought to do Uh, I think there's some wonderful opportunities if Adventists could come together and study scriptures I think that would be a wonderful thing yeah I was 
I was intrigued by your comment on the contrast between Zachariah's um, picture and then what Jesus does to the picture. It seems to me that even in the New Testament, there's still quite a lot of language about the second coming of the end of time that is transformative rather than disruptive. And it seems to me that Adventism has traditionally focused almost exclusively on a disruptive picture of the second advent rather than a sort of more continual transformative one. Um, but it, it, I suspect there could be some um, value for a, for a younger generation looking around at a world which is based on data, safer and more pleasant to live in than any previous generation. It, it sometimes is a little bit difficult to really buy into this picture that everything has to get worse and worse. When for lots of us it feels like it's basically, with, with um, some obstacles, it's basically getting better and better. Well, see, this, J. Paul Grohl, my mentor, when he took us to Matthew 24, 25, you know, typically we've said, you know, more, more wars, you know, more earthquakes, and so on. That's not the point at all. The point is, be ready. See? Now, depending on where you are, this is not a happy world any way you look at it. Now, we may be reasonably comfortable here, but in America, where we have Donald Trump running for president, and <laughs> all other kinds of places in the world, who knows what could happen? And that's why it's important for me to be faithful, expect the Lord to come at any moment. And I think that sense of imminence is, is pretty crucial. No. Thank you very much for your presentation. Now that there are no strict Presbyterian Sunday keepers as a guide how to keep the Sabbath, should we perhaps look at the Jews? As a guide. Well, the Jews are a fascinating bunch. You know, Judaism has scattered all over the place. You have the Reformed Jews who even said, well, everybody else is worshiping on Sunday. Why don't we try that? See, and they virtually lost any sense of Sabbath sacredness. But you don't have hardly anyone in, in, in Judaism that really is trying to keep the Sabbath sacred, except the extreme ultra-Orthodox in Israel, see. So if you're going to live in the world, and it's, it's, a, it's a messy world because the Sabbath was originally given to a rural culture. What do you do in an electronic age, you know, 24-7 all the time? I think we need to address that question carefully, prayerfully, and make some decisions. You know, our medical people have always done that all the way along. But there are lots of other people who have just as good a rationale for serving on Saturdays. And I do, Jews may be able to help us. I mean, Abraham Joshua Heschel's got some wonderful stuff. And what I find in the larger world that some of the best writing about Sabbath is being done by people who wish they had a Sabbath. Marvadon, keeping the Sabbath holy, is a good example. Now, she's a good Lutheran who keeps Tuesday. And, and I will sometimes ask my students, um, what would happen if you were to have your own day? What day would you pick? And then they realize that because this is the day that the Lord is blessed, we can come here unencumbered by all the worries that things we should be doing anyway. And I can tell you the Sabbath has a whole lot more bite for Adventists than Sunday has for Methodists. Uh, <clears throat> I've done several seminars in Pensacola, Florida for the Methodists and the wonderful people there. But, uh, boy, the Sunday just doesn't have the same clout. We can be very grateful that the Lord has blessed this day and has forbidden all of you to worry about the things that you worried about all week. 
It's a liberating prohibition. Thanks first for your presentation, which I quite refreshing. But a question, because I, I went through a period some years ago where I couldn't make any sense of revelation, so I spent an awful lot of time in the Old Testament. But it seems to me that when I look at the Old Testament, and, and this, this is a question, it's something I'm reflecting on a lot of later. It seems that when you start reflecting on the Old Testament, it destroys certainty. And I say that because, for example, you know, we look at the genocide, yep. where God's going to wipe everyone out, but he doesn't wipe everyone out. And then it talks about, well, not, not only that, you know, you, you go back to Genesis where the, 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 the um, famine that led the people into it covered the whole world, which is exactly the same language as the flood that covered the whole world. And you say, if it's not literal here... How do we know it's literal here? And all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I wonder if the answer to a lot of questions we have might be found in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament's a scary place to go because it seems there's no certainty in it, or if there is certainty, it's a difficult certainty. Well, my study was Old Testament because I wanted to explore the difference. Why do you have gentle Jesus who takes children in his arms? You go back to Mount Sinai, if you get too close, you get stoned. See? And so how do you deal with that? I think there's a huge progression there. But from my perspective, and I developed this in my little book, Who's Afraid of the Old Testament God? God of the Old Testament is incredibly patient, just like Jesus. If you're going to win people, and we stand in the free will tradition, a Calvinist doesn't have to worry about it. He can just go down the rows and say who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost, and don't worry about it. But if you're going to win people... You have to adapt to where they are. And one of my favorite quotations came from after I finished my Old Testament studies, I read the testimonies all the way through because I had a model that enabled me to work with it. You move from fear with an emphasis on God's power to goodness with an emphasis on joy, from external motivation to internal. So I applied that to the testimonies uh, and was absolutely astonished. But during that reading, there was a time that had to do with health reform, but I think it expresses God's ways of dealing with things. Um, it turns out that there were some pretty hard-driving health reformers that were trying to get the standard really high, and they were sending this message in the little health reformer out to the West, the United States, where people couldn't, couldn't live up to it. And they were simply, you know, instead of rubbing your nose in that all the time, they were just canceling their subscriptions. And it's in that context that Ellen White makes this amazing statement. We must go no faster than we can take those with us whose conscience and intellects are convinced of the truths we advocate. We must meet the people where they are. Some of us have been many years in arriving at our present position in health reform. We have powerful appetites to meet, for the world is given to gluttony. If we should allow the people as much time as we have required to come up to the present advanced state in reform, we would be very patient with them and allow them to advance step by step as we have done until their feet are firmly established on the health reform platform. But we must be very careful not to advance too fast, lest we be obliged to retrace our steps. In reforms, we would better come one step short of the mark than to go one step beyond it. And if there is error at all, let it be on the side next to the people. It's a wonderful description of how God has worked. And he goes in the Old Testament. He wants to push them because the Old Testament is ghastly stuff, the result of sin. Just, but he will not take them any faster than they can go. Well, that may be our last question. Uh, thank you, Alan, for your presentation. 
I know in the 1977 dissertation, you looked at Fort Ezra, and you looked at uh, determinism and apocalyptic. How do you reconcile determinism and apocalyptic with the conditionalism that you suggested in classical prophecy, and you said in Revelation, and Daniel as well? I think the only solution to that is having different people with different perspectives in the church. In fact, uh, the publisher of my book, Who's Afraid of the Old Testament God, was talking about, and he publishes from a variety of perspectives, he said he noticed that some of the best evangelists were Calvinists, and by our theory, they shouldn't have to evangelize at all. And, And so he asked one of them, and he says, I believe in predestination. It's a biblical teaching. And I believe in preaching the gospel. It's a biblical command. <laughs> so, but I think that if we balance each other out, uh, and I think that a troublesome passage from Ellen White that's often taken by the perfectionists to be, you know, harvest principle, you know, when the character cried. If you try to apply that on an individual basis, you die. But if you take it as a collective, that the Lord looks down here and he looks at this group of people at Avondale, and says, have you seen that people, their strengths are complementing each other's weaknesses. They're working together. The character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people. And it's time for me to come. So I don't know, I don't know how to put together the predestination and the free will. Both are biblical. And when I look at people, I think that's still the case. And I just want to make sure, because the danger with the free will tendency, it tends to evaporate the power of God. I often will illustrate this in class by drawing a diagram of a cliff top. You know, where the Calvinists are, defending everything. And when that collapses, as it often will, they crash into the river with a huge splash. And it's very spectacular. The free will Methodists, Arminian Methodists, however, will make one concession after another and will slide down the slippery slope. They will eventually drown in the river too, but it won't make a big splash. It's just kind of a quiet thing. <laughs> so I would like to see that thing. And there's one of my footnotes here where I mentioned that I think, you know, Des Ford's emphasis on, um, well, on justification, which comes very close to a deterministic position where God makes the decision, we don't. See. Um, we need to find ways of incorporating that more into the Adventist church. We are so strong on the free will side of things, that uh, that side gets constantly shouted down. And if you have family or friends on that other side, you will understand what I mean. Now, one of the groups, one of the questions that I asked when I was with the Methodists in Florida, and this was a pretty sophisticated church down there, about 45, and I asked, how many of you have family or friends here who at one time were in the free will tradition? But it moved over to the Reformed Evangelical position. Virtually every single hand went up. And I told Dave Neff once, Dave, former Adventist, uh, former editor of Christianity Today, um, and he said he left Adventism because he was more Augustinian. If there wasn't room for Des Ford in Adventist ministry, he wasn't sure there'd be room for him. Um, And so when I told him that Calvinist parents give birth to free will children and free will parents give birth to Calvinist kids, he laughed and referred to a conversation with his adult daughter just a few days before and said she was horrified to discover (laughs) that her father believed in predestination. Now he says it's a moderate form of predestination, but it is predestination. And you think she would have understood. We sent her to a Calvinist high school. (laughs) So... I've written a piece in Adventist Today entitled Calvinist on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. 
Um, because I think the great weakness of the free will approach, it's so hard driving, it just drives people wild. So what I suggest that on Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, I go full steam ahead with my free will, you know. But then on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I relax and leave it in God's hands. See, Now, I can't really do that, but I think it makes a good theory. Uh, I, I just think that we ought to work in the church to recognize the full family of God and let all of those impulses be present in the church, I think Adventism could once again be a really exciting place, and not exciting just in the sense of being dangerous. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alden. I was with you all the way, except for that bit about health reform. We have a uh, medical pioneer in this division called Dr. Daniel Chris, and he suffered from ill health repeatedly as a result of his eating practices. And on one occasion, he is said to have declared that he would live health reform even if it killed him. <laughs> I'm with Chris. <laughs> Can we ask you to give us a benediction? Let's, thank you very much. Yes. Lord, I want to thank you for this wonderful collection of faithful people. Some of them, no doubt, haunted with doubts, just as your good people were in Scripture. But we live in hope. As Paul said, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Grant us grace to be patient, to keep working, to keep hoping. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.